Hi, Nancy. Hi, Shane. So today, um, I have I have some I have a little quiz for you. Ooh, I love the quiz. Yeah. Sometimes. So, uh, so we should say this is um, this is the second part of a two part series where we're talking about mythical monsters and the real life animals that inspired them. And so, my first question for you is: What two creatures make up a griffin? Um. Can you picture um, a griffin? Yeah, aren't those the things that sometimes are on like, you know, like gothic buildings? Sometimes. So it looks like kind of scaly, um, mm. right? Dragony? Mm, flies. It flies, so it has wings. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go with bird. Bird, sure. And a um um, I mean, a, li- a lizard or a dragon, but a dragon is not a real thing. I don't know. No. So a griffin is a no. is <laughs> is traditionally an eagle and a lion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Not okay. quite a okay. scaly, okay. but okay. Okay. Um, all right. I have I have a, I have a couple or no, I have a multiple choice for you. Um, which of these is not a nickname for mermaids? Um. Siren, a naiad, a kelpie, or a sirenia? Kelpie. No, actually, sirenia. So sirenia oh, is... I knew the first two were. The first two are. Right. Sirenia yeah. is... Um, oh, shoot, I looked it up. It's like the order of uh, that like manatees are in. Okay. It's a scientific kelpie? name. I never heard of kelpie. Kelpie, yeah. So people... We could dive deep into this. People in like mythology would argue with Kelpie because it's a it's a shape shifting thing that oftentimes takes the form of a mermaid. So, okay, that just went down a weird. Yeah, I know. Route. I I did a lot of research for these questions. All right, one more quick one. What region do these Bigfoot names come from? So big, there's a lot of different names for Bigfoot. So where's Sasquatch from? Um, like what part of the world? Yeah. Um, the Western United States. Canada. 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 What about nice. what about Yeti? Yeti. Canada. No. <laughs> <laughs> Think like Himalayas. Uh, oh, the Himalayas. Nepal. That's my answer. Okay. <laughs> what about what about a Yowie? A Yowie? A Yowie. Maybe Australia. Australia. Oh my gosh, that was totally a guess. And the last one, one a skunk ape. A skunk ape. I'm going to go Africa. Nope. Somewhere. Mm, a skunk ape. Um, uh, Mexico. Florida. Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So like I said up top, this is the second episode in a two-part series where we're looking at mythical creatures and the animals that inspired them. And just as a reminder as well, we are currently doing some of our staff picks from Third Pod. So if you've heard this episode uh, before, we hope you'll listen again. If you haven't, please stick around. But this is just a coincidence um, but we are talking about two sea creatures. So it just happens to be that we're sea-themed this time. And so we're going to start with the Kraken. What's a Kraken? I know. I mean, actually, I heard, wasn't there something that's like, bring on the Kraken? 
Isn't that from a movie? Yeah. Well, there was so um, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies had had that in it. It's it's a mythical sea creature um, that we're going to learn more about, and so we'll bring in our uh, first interviewee to talk about it. So my name is Rodrigo Salvador, and I'm a curator of invertebrates at the Museum of New Zealand in Wellington, and. I actually specialize in snails, land snails, mostly. And as a curator, my job is to conduct research on mollusks and to look after, take care, and expand our collection of mollusks and also do outreach activities in the museum. Okay, that still does not explain what a kraken is. Oh, we're getting there, all right? Just just wait. Let's start in the beginning. <laughs> So as for my interest, it, it kind of started very early. Uh, I mean, the first memory of like receiving a book as a gift was a, was a book about Greek mythology that I got from my sister. And I kind of immediately got into it. And ever since then, it's just been a sort of expansion of it. So I've always liked to read about these monsters, the stories about the gods, etc. And this was independent of your kind of scientific interest. You just have this interest it's in Greek mythology. independent. Okay. Because when I was a child, of course, I was interested in dinosaurs, <laughs> sure. as all, child, all mm -hmm. children are. But then that kind of faded away a little bit. I got into a computer, I got into engineering in university, actually. And then I dropped it out and changed to biology. So I kind of lost the, I don't know, I kind of lost the interest in all the dinosaurs and the living world at some point, but then got back in it. And I mean, in between there was Dungeons and Dragons, of course. And I suppose that after I, I started biology, one thing just led to another in a natural way. Kind of the initial interest then was in Greek mythology. Yeah, I suppose that that has to do with Dungeons and Dragons. I'm always stuck <laughs> as the dungeon master, so I have to prepare adventures, make up, like come up with monsters, etc. So I already had an interest in mythology, so I was kind of looking into several monsters that kind of uh, started off as a, a sort of a common animal and just the legend just built up. And the Kraken was just one of them. But then there came one day that I, that I thought, well, I could actually start uh, write an article about this Kraken. I'm already like studying malacology, so it just felt natural. And so I started to investigate it, the story behind it, all the, the reports that we have in the literature about sightings of these monsters, etc. And that goes back to the 12th century in Norway. So that's the first like actual report okay. of a Kraken, if you believe it. <laughs> and the thing is back then there were several like sea monsters around. And there is this very old manuscript written by a king of Norway in the 12th century and he lists all sorts of sea monsters. The Kraken is just one of them. But I think what happened uh, in time as the centuries just passed, all these monsters 
some of them they kind of were not strong enough, I suppose, in the like in the, mm -hmm. the folklore in the in people's minds, etc. And they just kind of faded away. And the Kraken was just a, a strong enough monster to to survive in people's memory, I suppose. There's mention of Kraken going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? The the connection you're making, and I I, I want to ask. Is this a connection unique to you or are there other folks out there who have like looked at Kraken and thought, okay, it's probably, these people are probably seeing a giant squid. So yeah, in the, in the very first reports, we don't have actually much information besides the, the fact that the Kraken was gigantic. So at first it had a sort of amorphous quality to it. Some mm. people said it was like a mountain or an island. So you can also imagine the proportions of the monster. Mm -hmm. But then it, it kind of started to evolve uh, along the centuries. So we have representations of the Kraken as like a giant humanoid, like a giant lobster and a giant cephalopod too, of course. But the thing is, by the time you reach the 18th century, uh, the Kraken already had a sort of established cephalopod look. Mm -hmm. So, and and it was such a such a strong image in the in the minds of the Nordic countries that uh, Carl Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy, mm -hmm. the modern biological classification, he actually included the Kraken as a cephalopod in his book. You know, the original book, Systema Natura, that kind of defined and started the biological the system of biological classification it had the kraken listed as a as a real animal under cephalopods i found it really interesting that the kraken was listed as a species in and of itself um but it turns out there's a lot of murkiness in the is it a squid or is it a kraken realm so i asked rodrigo for some clarity when was the first description of a giant squid as something separate and apart from this, like as itself, when did that first description happen? That was in Greece. Okay. Actually. So it's Aristotle, I think fourth oh, century God, BC. Long time ago. Okay. So, and, and that's funny because back then they knew that there was, there were squids, normal squids, mm -hmm. and there was a giant version of squids that was a different animal. And they actually just treated it as, it is an animal, not a monster. And they had plenty of monsters. So, <laughs> so you you were left wondering why this one is not a monster. But anyway, they treated it as they treated it as a real animal. Was there Kraken? And then as people found out that there's also this thing out there that potentially could be the Kraken, did they come together kind of separately? Because I think in my mind it was giant squid. And it turns out the thing that people thought was a Kraken was actually always just a giant squid. But from the way you describe it, it's that the Kraken wasn't always a squid. It was this thing in the sea that was destroying stuff. So it's very possible that the, the animal that started the whole thing was actually a giant squid. We can never be like 100% sure about sure. it, but there are good indications of it. So if you go back to other uh, reports of the Kraken along the centuries, you will find... Um, Something like the um, there's a bishop Pontopidan in Norway, and he wrote extensively about the kraken, and that was the first moment when it was clearly a cephalopod. I mean, despite the 
like the huge colossal size he he assigns to the monster. There are some things like the fact that it could make the waters around it dark. So that's uh, that's kind of a cephalopod thing, you know, expelling ink to warn off predators, etc. So those were, I think those were the very first signs that it was related to a cephalopod. Of course, anything that back then in the 12th century, even before that, anything that people would see, you know, while they were like crossing from Norway to Iceland, anything that they would see floating around and it was kind of big, people would get scared of it, you know? Are there, I know with Kraken, there are these kind of these myths and stories of Kraken taking down ships and and causing all of this damage. So assuming that giant squids are actually Krakens, is there evidence that giant squids have ever done anything like this? Have they ever um, taken down a ship or, or anything like that? Is there any validity to the myths that were uh, told in the past? No, definitely not. So I, I suppose that seeing one of those like on the surface of the water might scare you quite a lot, especially if you were traveling around in a flimsy wooden boat back then. But, but the reality is that when squids are floating on the water like that, especially the giant squid, which lives deep underwater, so they usually reach the surface when they have like already uh, spawned their eggs and are dying. So they would not be able in any sense to attack a ship or anything. But the thing is they might still, well, they still have their defense mechanisms. So that includes, of course, uh, releasing ink on the water. And they can also spout water through the, a structure called the funnel. That's how they move with jet propulsion. But if they do that in the surface and people see like just a jet of water, so that that might scare someone. Sure. And it's very likely that when they got back home, they wanted to tell the story. And this story is just kind of increased a little bit, like every time they were told. And then that's how you end up with a monster. Yeah, I can imagine over the years, the they become more and more exaggerated um, as the stories get passed on. Yeah, you just add one other detail. And of course, if you're telling a good story about monster, it needs to be big. It needs to <laughs> be able to sink a ship and eat its entire crew, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So Nancy, now, do you know what a Kraken is? Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Do you, do you enjoy learning in our in our podcast interviews? Always. Learn <laughs> well, something new. Well, we wanted to uh or didn't want to, but we happened to end up sticking with the, with this theme of aquatic monsters. Uh and we talked to someone else who has some expertise on these linkages between um real life animals and the mythical monsters. So my name is Danielle Saratos. I'm the director curator at the Fundy Geological Museum, which is located in Parsboro, Nova Scotia, on the Bay of Fundy, which is worldwide famous for having the highest tides in the world. Um, I specialize in researching Mesozoic marine reptiles, which would include plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and mosasaurs. Mosasaurs have been fairly popular in media for the past couple of years due to Jurassic World and the 
quite voracious mosasaur that's in the water pen in that movie. Um, but more recently, I've been working on Canada's oldest dinosaurs, the prosauropods, and the earliest reptiles, as well as the reptiles that were living alongside those Canada's earliest dinosaurs. So moving more into the land environments. I think it'd be helpful to place folks in time. So when was the like Mesozoic? When is the period where these animals that we're going to be talking about lived? So I'm actually going to go on a bit of a tangent here because Perfect. providing a quick overview of Mesozoic marine reptiles is not like really all that quick. <laughs> Fair enough. So the Mesozoic was the geological era from 252 to 66 million years ago and includes the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods. So that's the Mesozoic part. The marine reptiles is a bit more complicated. So they're reptiles the same way that dinosaurs were, mm -hmm. but there are some pretty significant differences between marine reptiles and dinosaurs. The biggest one is uh, marine reptiles, there's a lot of fossil evidence that they gave birth to live young. So instead of laying eggs the way that dinosaurs did. Mm -hmm. A notable exception would be turtles, which just goes to show that classifying animals can be a really tricky problem. <laughs> Uh, marine reptiles, they also lived in the ocean, or at least in brackish waters, like an estuarine system. The only aquatic dinosaur that we currently know of is the Spinosaurus, and it seems to have stuck to freshwater. So that designation of mostly being on land versus mostly being in the ocean is a pretty clear delineation. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, marine reptiles had fins or flippers, whereas dinosaurs had and have toes with claws. So it's important to keep in mind that these evolutionary relationships are incredibly complicated and general statements in science should always come with a caveat. For example, dinosaurs evolved from some reptiles the same way birds evolved from some dinosaurs. But that doesn't mean that birds are actually reptiles. They just share many characteristics due to sharing ancestors. Nancy? Yes? Did you... Are, do you know your... Um your, I guess, geologic epochs, your your time scales? Mesozoic, Jurassic, Cenozoic. I have no idea. I'm just saying words. <laughs> this is why we had we had Danielle. Uh, what about what about your different uh, aquatic reptiles, right? Like mosasaurs, plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs. Dinosaurs, mammosaurs. <laughs> no. Well, we, we, got a, we got a quick background on kind of the eras. Now uh, I really wanted to ask uh, Danielle to dive into plesiosaurs in particular and their influence on kind of these myths that we're going to be talking about. Plesiosaurs were around um, mostly from the end of the Jurassic through the end of the Cretaceous or the mass extinction event that wiped out almost all the dinosaurs and all the marine reptiles that we were talking about as far as plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and mosasaurs go. Um, so when we talk about marine reptiles, especially during the Mesozoic era, so during the age of dinosaurs, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about four major groups, plesiosaurs being my area of interest, but there's also mosasaurs, which people would associate with the Jurassic World movies. I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and then ichthyosaurs, which 
are very, very popular in England because the first ichthyosaurus skeleton was found on the Jurassic coast in Dorset. And um, turtles. So, of course, turtles are still still around today, but they look vastly different than they did mm -hmm. during the age of dinosaurs. In fact, Archelon, which was a turtle that is hundreds of millions of years old at this point, was roughly the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. So she's interested in these prehistoric reptiles, but how does that lead to her, you know, interest in Loch Ness Monster, these other kind of things? I have been a science communicator for the majority of my career in paleontology. And inevitably, when you work with plesiosaurs, you have to learn about the Loch Ness Monster. It's just something that comes with the territory. Um, so the Loch Ness Monster is a story that most likely dates back about 1,500 years ago to the Pictish Standing Stones um, in the Scottish Highlands. So nowadays, these Pictish Standing Stones are more frequently associated with the term water horse or Kelpie. Um, but these depictions have fins and flippers, which really encourages that connection to prehistoric plesiosaurs. Mm. And other Mesozoic marine reptiles to some extent as well. Like you alluded, you know, the ichthyosaurs, while they look different, a lot of these um, mythological creatures have a weird accumulation of different types of body parts. So sure. it's totally fair game to say that ichthyosaurs would be a part of this inspiration as well. Well, ichthyosaur skeletons and fossils right. would be. <laughs> well, there was like a lot of chimeras, right? Essentially just pulling different... Yes body parts from different organisms to make the thing of your choosing almost. Absolutely. And that totally makes sense when you think about it from a paleontological perspective, because so often the fossils that we find are not articulated, which just means that we find individual bones kind of scattered about and moved in different areas relative to how they would have been connected when the animal was still alive. Mm -hmm. So going back to the Loch Ness Monster, there's this story of a missionary who in the year 565 claims to have come upon a swimmer being attacked by a monster in the lake in the loch which was recorded in his biography and then the history of digging up fossils predates the written word but there were significant advances in what would become the field of paleontology in the early 1800s when mary anning who we talked about before mm -hmm. uh, when Mary Anning discovered the first ichthyosaurus and the first complete plesiosaur at the Jurassic coast in Dorset, uh, which is now a UNESCO world heritage site okay. because it's so incredibly important for the fossils that we find there. Um, so 110 years later from her discovery of that plesiosaurus, a local couple made newspaper headlines claiming to have seen an enormous animal rolling and plunging on the lock surface a year later so this would have been the early 30s uh 1930s um a physician published a picture of the long-necked monster but a deathbed confession from a stepbrother 60 years later revealed that the photo had been an elaborate hoax that they had made with wood and a toy submarine oh wow yeah that's dedication <laughs> It is. And it's funny how like that part of the story is not commonly known. Like a lot of people know about the surgeon's photograph, but very few people know that there was an official retraction of that photograph. That's, I mean, 
that's how retractions work, unfortunately. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. So while we're drawn to this idea of prehistoric monsters, especially in the ocean, um, I think it really draws from this idea that humans love a good mystery, right? They mm -hmm. really love the idea of this is phenomenal or extraordinary and let's tell this story and not worry about the pesky facts that you know redact it later <laughs> sure what uh so i guess like when um when were the first connections so like you people talking about stories for like what you said like 1500 years almost um mm -hmm. when did the connections first start happening between these stories and these supposed first-hand accounts to Oh, but it could have. It could actually be this, or it could be backed up by the fossil record, or whatever it might be. Like, when did that start happening? The first well-documented evidence that people were tying fossils and the rock record to these mythological stories, like the Loch Ness monster, probably weren't appearing until the early 1900s. Um, fossils were really being bought and sold for museums and private collectors, you know, in the late 1800s. But it was mostly a hobby for people, mm. especially in the UK at that time. Yes, there was scientific research going on, but it was a beginning field at that time. And it was very insular. It was very classist. It was very sexist. Ah. So... There were very few people that had access to that information. Even though they were being put in museums, they weren't necessarily, the fossils weren't necessarily being put together accurately. There was a lot of confusion and building from the ground up in that field at that time. So I would say fairly confidently that those sorts of, I guess, uh, interactions or relations between mythological creatures and actual fossils you know, full fossil skeletons, at least, being compared wasn't happening until the early 1900s. When talking to Danielle, I found it interesting that the Loch Ness monster, let's say truthers, uh, they like to use fossil evidence to say that, yes, the monster existed and may still exist. And that was the case dating back hundreds of years using these fossils to support their claims. I wanted to know, though, kind of the opposite. I was wondering when folks started looking at the fossil record and using current technology to say, yes, something like this may have existed in our history, but most certainly does not now. I think when you talk about using scientific evidence of fossils, specifically with plesiosaurs, to sort of debunk this idea of the Loch Ness Monster, that idea had been around probably as long as the surgeon's photograph had been a thing. Mm -hmm. However, the evidence has really accumulated strongly and been strongly presented in the last mm, probably 30 to 40 years. Okay. So there's this desire for this compelling horror story that there's this lake monster that's going to come out and attack innocent bystanders, right? But extensive LIDAR sweeps across the Loch Ness and the surrounding area have pretty definitively verified that nothing near the size of a plesiosaur is living in that lake. And nothing really on that size scale would even be possible to survive in Loch Ness at this point, just because we have a 
really good understanding of what size these animals would have been on a global distribution, not just in the UK. And these were large marine reptiles. I mean, we're talking anywhere between three and 11 meters long. They were sizable creatures. And the fossil evidence shows us that they all lived in salt water to brackish water. And of course the Loch Ness is freshwater. So that's another you know, indicator that there's really, there's no scientific evidence to really support this idea that they'd still be living in a freshwater environment. Now, to top it all off, there's also this idea that we really understand ecological niches and food webs and these big picture ideas about how animal communities live nowadays. And yes, that's comparing them to modern species, Mm -hmm. but we have enough fossil evidence to talk confidently about what resources would be necessary for animals like plesiosaurs to have survived. And the Loch Ness simply doesn't have that size or that level of resources to support even one plesiosaur, let alone generations needed to survive, you know, the past, well, at least the past 66 million years. Are there still people out there who fervently believe that Loch Ness is still there? And I guess, can you speak to, do you know any of their arguments or why they would still think this? Well, there are definitely people who still believe the Loch Ness Monster is real. (laughs) Um, Even people who like are not invested in it, they just casually assume that that's true because Mm. they know someone who have said it or they read some article online or, you know, watch some fake documentary or something. So there's definitely people who are kind of casually interested in that idea and also vehemently believe that the Loch Ness Monster is real and it's simply outsmarted everyone who's gone looking for it. You know, (laughs) the excuses abound, right? So we're talking about the Loch Ness Monster, but do like other countries have these kind of same similar myths like the Loch Ness? So one of the most famous examples of people thinking they had found a live plesiosaur would have been in the 70s off the coast of Japan. There was a fishing vessel that brought up a carcass that when they pulled it up with their, I believe it was a trawling net, um, it had this really elongated neck. The skull still had some dead tissue on it and the fins did as well, but a lot of the ribs were exposed and a lot of the cartilage, you know, and bone-like structures were exposed. So it was very decayed and uh, it had been scavenged upon. So it wasn't clear what the animal was. So people took photos uh, from, I want to say from the docks when the boat came in and it just plastered global newspapers. You know, it was this massive headline of, you know, fisher folk discover prehistoric, you know, ocean dinosaur or something, right? (laughs) And it actually took a little while to figure out what was going on there. So they did end up contacting some of their local scientists uh, there in Japan, and they did some uh, DNA testing, of course, which the technology was not as advanced as it is today, but in the 70s, that was still a possibility, right? So they eventually figured out that it had been a thrasher shark skeleton, that the cartilage that makes up their bones of a shark were still fresh enough 
that the skeleton stayed together, still held together mostly by muscle that had not yet been scavenged and eaten. And so a lot of the exterior, like the skin and a lot of the soft organs were missing, but that musculature and that cartilage was still there enough to kind of keep it together. And thrasher sharks, actually, when you take away a lot of their ribs and organs, they look like they have really long necks. Throughout this conversation, I was really interested. Uh, Why do folks find this so intriguing? I wondered why people still really want to and do believe in things like Loch Ness Monster. Um, As far as why people choose to believe those stories, I think human civilization has a very long and storied history of believing things that the evidence just simply isn't there for. And that's okay, right? Because... If we don't have that sense of wonder and sense of discovery, you know, what are we doing, right? Like there's, you talk about being a scientist, that literally is the driving force for most scientific breakthroughs and endeavors is that sense of wonder, that desire to discover new things, to make new understandings and share them with the world. So I can't fault people for wanting to believe something extraordinary because that's what makes the world interesting, right? <laughs> Nancy, do yeah. you do you believe in anything um, like unexplained, like mythical creatures or ghosts or something like that? No, definitely not. <laughs> do you? Um, I don't. I don't believe in the stuff we've been talking about. I don't not believe in ghosts. I mean, really, that's interesting. <laughs> Again, I said this before, but I wish people could see the shade that you're throwing at me with your eyes. (laughs) Well, all right, folks, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Shane, for bringing us this story. And of course, thanks to Rodrigo and Danielle for sharing their work with us. This podcast was produced and mixed by me. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Please rate and review us. Um, Check us out wherever you get your podcasts or always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And if you missed it, there's a part one to this series that you can check out. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time.